Hello, I'm Ant, and this is the On the Left Side 2018 Fanual. is great. Henderson is great. This is just great. I mean, I mean, it's great. This is great. It's great. Yes, welcome to our bumper compendium of some of the standout moments of the last 12 months in football. And what a year it's been. There's been scandal, racism, sexism, misogynism, even Raheemism. Lots of shouting, tweeting, swearing, diving and spitting. There was a beer shortage and more footballing crises than we have sound effects for. We've had weird mascots and even weirder sponsorship deals. And the game has been forever changed by technology and touched by tragedy. But we start with one football event that stood above all of these. And it nearly brought about the end of the world. In years to come, when a cold wind blows the dust from a once fertile ground and interrupts the silence of a now dead world, my son will turn to me and he will ask one question. Dad, what happened? It is then that I will have to explain that England getting to the quarterfinals of the World Cup brought about the apocalypse. This isn't some bit about England's success in Russia being so unlikely it'll trigger the end of the world, by the way, and Kane, Vardy, Welbeck and Sterling being the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's because Saturday is going to cause chaos right across the country. Baking hot sunshine, everyone's just being paid, midday drinking, 3pm kickoff, it's coming home mania. We don't stand a chance. Win or lose, by around 5pm, the streets of every city up and down the land will be full of people acting and sounding, well, just like Ross Kemp did after the win over Columbia. That is everything, everything. We love you, boys. We love you. Genuinely terrifying. Usually when someone says they love me, I get a warm glow in my chest. After that, the only warmth I'm feeling is in my underpants. I can't even begin to imagine what state he's going to be in after the Sweden game. Although looking at that video, he does seem like he might have been partaking in a little Colombian produce during the match. So maybe he's just getting really involved in the tournament by sampling a little bit of what every country that we're playing has to offer. He'll probably be posting a video on his Twitter account on Saturday afternoon where he's surrounded by flat pack furniture and gorging himself an Ikea meatballs. Grant Mitchell wasn't the only one. England's success in the World Cup was so unexpected people just didn't know what to do and for a moment it looked like the nation would collapse in mass hysteria some started mass brawls some trashed a taxi for no good reason in central london and some because we've beaten sweden decided to go to their local ikea and show them what for by jumping up and down on furniture and shouting it's coming home a lot Maybe this is just karma. For years, we found ourselves surrounded by bits of IKEA furniture with weird names, wondering how to put it together. And now, for once, in one store at least, they face a similar problem. I don't really get it, if I'm honest. Why go and trash an IKEA? Okay, it's Swedish, but it's also half British. But let's forget that. It's not like England fans went out on the rampage seeking revenge after each of the group stages. After the Panama game, a load of bald blokes waving the flag of St George didn't take their anger out on a hat shop or jump in a canal. It's all just a bit weird. What the hell are they going to do if we beat Croatia? As it turned out, England didn't beat Croatia. In fact, they managed to lose more games than anybody else in the tournament. But for some people, the most memorable moment of Russia 2018 wasn't the hope that semi-final gave us, nor was it Eric Dyer ensuring England won a penalty shootout. No, for some, the most memorable moment was the fall from grace of a footballing giant. Jurgen Klinsmann, Franz Beckenbauer, Boris Becker, Karl Marx, Michael Schumacher, Angela Merkel, Albert Einstein, Heidi Klum, Hans Zimmer, Kraftwerk, Ramstein, Frank Werther Sausages, uh, David Hasselhoff. I think I've run out of German things. Anyway, your boys took one hell of a beating. Forget England versus Belgium and that bore fest and where England finished in the group and whether Gareth Southgate deliberately lost that game. Germany getting knocked out of the World Cup is far more important. It was South Korea who were the masters of their downfall, scoring the first goal in a 2-0 win after a call 
from the video ref. <laughs> oh, sorry, I forgot. Don't mention the VAR! It was the second goal, though, that got everyone talking. The world's best goalkeeper, Manuel Neuer, seemed to forget he was playing in quite an important football match and just went for a little wander around the pitch, leaving an open goal for the Korean striker to tap into. It was a moment that football fans around the world thoroughly enjoyed, unless they were German. And it's even better if you add a little bit of music to it. Flicked on into the box. Muller is chasing, so is Royce. Chosen out the goalkeeper. What are you doing? He's playing left wing. Throwing. Oh, here is Neuer. He's on the ball on the left wing. He's tackled. Neuer's out of position. The ball is stuck long for Son. Son chases it. Can he keep this in place? He's going to score. Son surely. It's all over. South Korea with an incredible win over Germany and Kazan. And that is that for the defending champions. They're going to finish bottom of the group. They've been a shambles here in Kazan. And the World Cup slips from their grasp. We're looking through some of our favourite on the left side moments of 2018, a year in which the news has been dominated by politics, and those politics started to bleed into football. On the pitch, thanks to Pussy Riot at the World Cup final, in the commentary booth, and also in Parliament. I'm sure you've seen those videos of MPs celebrating Eric Dyer's winning penalty in the House of Commons that were doing the rounds earlier this week. I joked at the time that the next thing we know, they'll be raising questions about England's success in the House of Commons. And then this week, this happened on PMQs. Mr Speaker, after last night, I'm sure there's one question I don't need to ask the Prime Minister, which is, does she believe that football is coming home? the Honourable Lady, I sincerely hope actually that members across the whole of this House will be congratulating England's success and welcoming England's success. Well, if recent history is anything to go by, then yes, it probably will be coming home. But even if it settles here and has a family, the government are still going to try and send it away a few years later because it doesn't have the right paperwork. It's great that there isn't really anything important for MPs to be discussing right now, isn't it? Like the NHS crisis or Brexit or Northern Rail or potholes or pension deficits or nerve agent attacks or the Irish border or anything like that, isn't there? Good stuff. Just before Christmas, it was looking like Theresa May was going to lose her job. But she was saved when it turned out, rather surprisingly, she was more popular with the Tories than Jose Mourinho was with Man United. There seemed to be a general feeling of calmness about Manchester United for everyone. Everyone that is except this fan on Manchester United fan channel, The United Stand. Does that paper over the cracks? Of course it fucking does. We were shit there. What was the philosophy in that shit? Have you ever been so angry that your voice goes into a frequency that only dogs can hear? What? May we got a guy playing with glory, glory, man united! It's not fucking Barcelona! Alright, mate, calm down. Fall out a drink. Actually, I think you might have had all the drinks for everyone. You can sympathise with Jose a little bit here, can't you? He's still getting a load of stick despite a massive second half comeback and a five goal thriller. It's really no surprise that he's getting a bit of a complex about the whole thing. You know, I go to London tonight. If tomorrow rings in London, it's my fault. You know, if there is some difficulty of the Brexit, it's my fault. Hang on. Did I just hear Jose Mourinho taking the blame for something? If you ask me, that is an admittance of guilt. Mourinho is responsible for Brexit. Someone get on the phone to Theresa May. Got a feeling she is going to be very relieved because it was looking dicey there for a moment. Maybe we should just have an in-out referendum on whether Jose stays at Old Trafford. I think I know how this fella's going to be voting. Don't say the fucking piss! At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who's responsible for this mess. What we need is someone to step up to the plate and take charge. Uh, a natural-born leader. Could there be one of those under our noses? Playing in the Premier League? Craig Bellamy got a little bit overexcited about City's win and particularly Vincent Company's performance and future. Mentally, he's very, very strong. You know, we're talking about a lad who, you know, he, he won't just settle when he finishes football going into management or coaching. He'd be looking to take over president of Af the whole of Africa. <laughs> There is so much wrong with that statement. For a start, does Bellamy know that company is from Belgium? And in which case, why Africa? 
And does he even know that Africa is a continent, not a country? Did he just see George Weir a couple of months ago getting made president of Liberia and now he assumes that is just the career path that any ex-Manchester City player takes? Is Bellamy going to put himself forward as the ruler of Uganda in the next few months? The thing is, Craig wasn't the only one that was thinking that. In the Fly on the Wall Amazon Prime documentary All or Nothing, we got to see some of what Craig was talking about. If I want to see this team go to the next level and do even more, that even at every single detail, we need to, to, to be honest with ourselves and we need to be harder with ourselves. Now, obviously, he's getting older and with his injury record, Vinny must be starting to look for an alternative career. And Bernardo Silva has an idea of what he'd be good at. He could be a president one day, in fact, because his speeches are so good that he could, he could go for a president. <laughs> president would be a good bet. After all, America has paved the way for reality TV stars to hold the top job, so maybe he is qualified now. We know he's a great team leader, and having just got a degree last season, he's obviously pretty smart. But you need a little more to get that kind of job. You need something about you. You need to show that you've made a real difference to the world around you. I'll tell you what, um, the first thing is the training ground. Like you can see, this is a very nice place. When I signed for City, it was a bit different. You know, it's like uh, um, if you wanted to go to the toilet, it was sometimes difficult because, you know, the door was, was there's no door on the toilet. This is a bit awkward. And that was City when I signed nine years ago. And if you look at it today, uh, you know, there's, there's doors on every toilet. So um, it's a bit of a different club now. To be perfectly honest, I'd want more than just toilet seats from my president. But that's just locker room bants. We don't actually have any current footballers who have actually ran for president, do we? It was never much in doubt that the Liverpool striker would bag the big individual award to cap what has been a remarkable individual season, which Twitter accounts at Sporf highlighted with their rundown of his achievements this term. PFA Player of the Year, Africa Player of the Year, Arab Player of the Year, Premier League top scorer, World Cup qualifier and runner-up in the Egyptian presidential election. Wait, wait, what? That was the last one again? Runner-up in the Egyptian presidential election. I've checked that out and it's true. Although he didn't actually run for the office of Egyptian president. Salah is such a hero in his home country that when the Egyptians went to the polls earlier this year, a million of them crossed out the other candidates' names and wrote down Salah's instead, meaning he wasn't that far off getting voted in. That kind of thing just would not happen over here. No one would even consider possibly electing the average English top-flight footballer into a position of government power. If you did, you'd just end up with a government full of overpaid, underperforming, sexually indiscreet people with dodgy polit... Oh, hang on. Well, essentially you'd end up with younger versions of Boris Johnson. Maybe we could do some kind of swap deal. Having seen Boris playing in that soccer aid tournament, and given that he isn't afraid of giving Russia an earful, he'd probably do a decent job in the World Cup. And then we could just send one of the English players over to handle Brexit negotiations. That should get us out of Europe in no time. Yep, Mo Salah was pretty much the man of the season in all departments, though Harry Kane wasn't too happy about handing over the Premier League Golden Boot crown. Can you have a boot that's also a crown? Don't know. Anyway, Harry appealed for every goal he could to try and catch the Liverpool hitman. Though ultimately in vain, at one stage, it seemed like Harry had the dubious goals panel in his back pocket. I'm beginning to think that Harry is just, in fact, the master of mind control and has some Darren Brown type abilities up his sleeve. First, he convinces the dubious goals panel that he did, in fact, score the most dubious of all goals. And now he's managing to mind-bend apologies from the FA for a light-hearted dig. With that kind of talent, I'm amazed he didn't walk away with the PFA Player of the Year award this week. Sorry, Harry, but if you don't have your invite with you, you can't come into the awards. You don't need to see my invitation. We don't need to see his invitation. Mo Salah isn't the player you're looking for. Mo Salah isn't the player we were looking for. I can go and pick up the award myself. Come on now, mate. That goal was one thing, but player of the year, fuck off. Move along. Mm -hmm. Don't forget your violin. Wanker. 
Mo would go on to grab a goal at the World Cup, no thanks to Sergio Ramos, who treated the Egyptian with about as much respect as Liverpool fans treated the Man City bus when they came to Anfield in April in the Champions League. Some fans, however, were keen to point fingers at a pre-match incident that proved what we've known all this time. Football fans hate buses more than anyone. Well, football fans and Conor McGregor anyway. Take off! Liverpool fans lined the streets to welcome Pep Guardiola's team to the city of Liverpool with bottles, flares and bricks all being lobbed in the direction of the team coach. It was a scene pretty similar to the one we saw last year when Manchester United turned up to play the final ever game at Upton Park. I say it was similar, there were some pretty big differences as well. The major difference being the reaction from inside the coach. You may remember that this was how the United team reacted to the fracas in East London. Well, the behaviour of the Man City team was a little, well, calmer. chilled out right although i don't think that fella is going to be getting a job at the liverpool tourist board anytime soon although this was the bit that really caught my attention we need a kitchen oh, seriously, we need to get all the food across name as well you make sure we get the same kitchen then. a kitchen a coach with a kitchen that coach never had a kitchen that fella is just trying it on with the insurance company yeah, John, tell them the windows have gone, and, and the kitchen, uh, yeah, we need a kitchen, and uh, yeah, the laptop's gone, and uh, the PS4's gone, and the Mona Lisa, and uh, we had a priceless collection of Fabergé eggs. Yeah, tell them that, John. Liverpool have apologised for the damage that they did to the coach, but they're yet to apologise for the damage they did on the pitch. While we're on the subject of Liverpool and apologies, in March there was one story that dominated the whole of football and gave us a brand new word. Spitgate. Which is worse? Being manager of a football team that has only won once in 17 attempts or spitting on a 14-year-old girl? Because whilst Mauricio Pellegrino may have been sacked for the former... For now at least, Jamie Carragher remains in gainful employment despite committing the latter, which I'd probably argue was worse, even if most Southampton fans would disagree with me right now. They are, of course, very, very different incidents, but it was Spitgate, or as I prefer to call it, the Spitocalypse, or Spitageddon, that stole a march on the majority of football publications on Monday morning when the story broke despite it not really being about football. Mm -hmm. It all started when the Mirror newspaper obtained a video from a man who was driving along filming Jamie Carragher from his car window after Manchester United ground all the joy out of Liverpool's attacking football in their 2-1 victory on Saturday. The video showed Carragher driving along whilst the filmer royally took the piss, shouting phrases like 2-1! 2-1, mate! A lucky Jamie, lad! 2-1, lad! <laughs> Fairly innocuous stuff, apart from the filming out your car window when you should really be concentrating on driving the car. That's a traffic offence that can land you six points and a £200 fine, but we'll leave that to one side for now. Plus, he'll probably get that money back once he gets the video after you've been framed anyway. It's what happened next, though, that was really shocking. Instead of doing what most normal folk would do, and when I say normal, I mean even footballers, like flicking the V or winding your window up and just driving off, Cara decided to launch a well-aimed mouthful of spittle at the fan's car, and he scored a direct hit, at the same time catching a 14-year-old girl who was sitting, innocently, in the passenger seat, which ironically was the first thing a Liverpool player had got on target that day. Jamie Carragher spat on my door. Nice. Nice. Very nice, Jamie Carragher. My first reaction on watching that video wasn't disgust. It wasn't even surprise. It was amazement. Amazement at the sheer volume of spit that Jamie Carragher can conjure up, seemingly at a moment's notice. 
It was as if Niagara Falls was erupting from his mouth. If it wasn't so vile, it would be pretty bloody impressive. Wow! A man that can produce that volume of water in an instant could be the solution to third world drought. Don't sack him. Pack him off to Africa instead. Just one Jamie Carragher can irrigate enough crops to feed an entire village. Please, give generously. The reaction to the clip was instantaneous and predictable. People wanted Jamie Carragher's head and demanded that he should be removed from his position as a pundit on Sky. After all, TV is no place for people who spit on others. Unless you're working with Bob Carroll, geez. He's called Spit the Dog. Carragher claims he was goaded a number of times before he finally flipped. But what actually made him lose his head is, well, it's nothing, is it? Maybe he just really hates numbers as an irrational reaction to anyone who dares to tell him a scoreline. In which case, if he does keep his job in TV punditry, it's probably not a bad idea to keep him away from that dude who does the classified pool results. United 3, Southampton 0, West Bromwich Albion 1, Leicester City 4, West Ham United 0, Burnley... Jamie? What are you doing in here? You can shut up as well, liar! <laughs> I've flip-flopped back and forth on this story a number of times. On one hand, I think it's an absolutely vile and disgusting thing that Carragher did. There is absolutely no excuse for it. But on the other hand, we all make mistakes. We've all done things at some point in our lives that we regret. And I'd hope that we'd all be given a second chance under similar circumstances. One thing I do know is that watching the apology he gave on Sky Sports later that day, it wasn't forced, it wasn't staged, and it didn't appear that, as with many other footballing-type apologies, that he'd been forced to get up there and say words that he didn't really mean. There's no doubt what I have done on, on Saturday after the game is disgusting. It is my biggest regret, of course, all of it is. Again, all I can do right now is sort of apologise as much as I possibly can because obviously I can't go back and uh, I'd like to obviously apologise again to them. If, uh... At one point, it even looked like he was fighting back tears. At least I think they were tears. Could have easily been splashback. It's hard to tell. He does seem genuinely disappointed by his actions, but as heartfelt as it was, as far as apologies go in football, it left a little bit to be desired. Do you remember Eric Cantona's apology after his kung fu kick? All about seagulls and trawlers and stuff. If you ask me, Cara would have done a much better job just to follow that example. When uh, the pigeons fly down to the pavement, like, uh, it's sometimes because uh, someone's dropped some chips or something. Thank you very much. Much better. Like I say, I've struggled to make up my own mind on this. So where is a good place to go when you want some level-headed, sensible solutions to big world problems? You go to Vinnie Jones talking on TalkSport. That's where. What about the lad driving it? How was he not driven after Jamie, rammed him, dragged him out of the crumb, beat seven... <coughs> you know what I mean? I mean, there's no sitting on the fence here. Jamie's down the road, job centre tomorrow. Yep, a perfectly normal reaction from Mr Jones. I think we should let Vinny head up the disciplinary board at the FA. Get him dishing out some real punishments. Five yellow cards, you get your kneecaps done in with a crowbar. Diving for a penalty, and Vinny goes to town on you with a blowtorch and a pair of pliers. And show any dissent to the ref, well, Jones is going to pay you a visit in the middle of the night, roll you up in a carpet, and throw you off a bridge. Which isn't actually as far-fetched as it sounds, because amazingly, Vinnie Jones now runs a carpet wholesalers near Luton. It's been emotional. Incredibly, that last bit about Vinnie is genuinely true, that Hollywood Hardman has picked out eight different styles, all named after movies. There's Limitless, Metropolis, Casino Royale, Notting Hill, and my own personal favourite, Wonderful Life. There's, there's no punchline here, I just thought I'd give him a plug and keep in his good books. Really don't want to get on his wrong side. By the way, if Jamie Carragher's listening, you might want to give these a miss. They're well expensive, and I'm not sure how easy it is to wash gob out of them. But that wouldn't be a problem for the winners of the biggest cash prize in football. Yes, 
the championship playoff final was estimated to land either Fulham or Villa a whopping £160 million. And like with the World Cup, some fans found it all a bit too much to process what was going on. Just imagine what a team could do with £160 million quid. You could probably get um, one and a half decent midfielders, if you haggle a bit. It was always going to mean a lot for everybody involved, but no more so than the little fella Hayden, who won a competition to lead the Villa out onto the pitch at Wembley. This is the moment his dad told him he'd won. You know, on Saturday, how did you fancy walking out with the Villa players, and in particular the captain? Tom Terry. What do you reckon? Yeah. Fancy doing it? Yeah. You're walking out on Saturday with John Terry. Really? Really. Isn't that amazing or what? I don't think he gets it. He's not sunk in, has he? No, I don't think he has. Hayden, on Saturday, you are walking out onto the pitch with... Wembley pitch. Yeah, Wembley pitch. Wembley. Yeah? With John Terry. Yes. Bloody Wembley. Come on. See that complicated? You're walking out with John... T- forget it. I wonder how long it took to explain the result to him after the game. Mm-hmm. His dad seems pretty chuffed though, to be honest. If it were me, I'd be a little bit more concerned about letting Terry anywhere near my family unit. It's an incredible story um, and I'm still looking to add to that. You're listening to our end of year review of 2018 in football. A scene through our slightly out of focus on the left side eyes. Now, we really do have to mention the remarkable achievement of Manchester City. And no, I'm not talking about the amount of goals they scored, the points they accrued, or all those other records that they broke. I mean the incredible way in which they celebrated winning the Premier League on social media. Opposition fans are always going to take the piss out of another team's efforts. But did Manchester City really need to give them as much ammo as they did on social media? To add insult to victory, the club had prepared a special musical victory video with UAE sponsor Etisalat that really struck a bum note. If you just threw up in your mouth, clap your hands. If you pulled a muscle cringing, clap your hands. If you're worried about the commercialisation of modern football and have genuine concerns for the future of the game, if that video made you cry a bit, clap your hands. Thankfully, there were some genuine celebration videos too. And that responsibility fell largely to club captain and man of the people, Vincent Company, who celebrated the result like a real football fan. And that's by getting absolutely leathered in the pub and standing on a table. It's been a fucking long journey. Especially as you've been a blue for more than 40 years in your life. But tonight, we're winning again. There's more people in the pub with him than there were at the Etihad. It's a stirring, inspirational, Churchillian speech from the Belgium defender. That's if Churchill had spent most of his afternoons drinking Stella and downing Jaeger bombs anyway. Oh, yes. I have to say, though, that given Vinny's recent injury record, you'd have to question the wisdom of chucking back a few beers and standing on a rickety pub table. Amazingly, company has been pretty uninjured thus far this season, but there's a few others at the club who've not been so lucky. And neither were we, as this gave Jim an excuse to get his guitar out. Just when it was looking like this season was already being chalked off as a long procession to Manchester City, lifting the Premier League, finally, the blue half of Manchester has hit a bump in the road. Not only have they dropped points to newly promoted Wolves, but they've also been plunged into crisis. And not just any old crisis, 
Because this, according to a fair few footballing websites, is a keeper crisis. Thank God for that. Because it was already looking a bit boring, wasn't it? It's just a shame that the crisis that has the Etihad rocking is in fact an Achilles injury to the much maligned backup keeper Claudio Bravo. The player who was often cited as Manchester City's Achilles heel in his first season in England has actually hurt his Achilles heel. Stick that in your song, Alanis. A little too ironic And yeah, I really do think It's like hurting you In fact, the crisis is so low-key, you won't see anyone, other than the footballing websites in their hunt for delicious clicks, getting themselves into any real lather about it. You never want to see players get injured. And I wish Claudio a speedy recovery, but City still have their number one available in Edison, and some youthful backup in the form of the recalled Aro Muric. It just would have been better if maybe they had a promising young keeper with first-team experience, someone like... Angus Gunn in the team, or a journeyman stopper with something to prove like, say, Joe Hart in the ranks. Just saying. Stick that in your song, Alanis. A little too ironic. All right, Jim, that's enough. Put it down. City looked to have come through that crisis, but by far the club who seemed to have the most and biggest crises is, is, was City's local rivals. The most anger at the moment seems to be coming out of Old Trafford, which is a club in crisis. No, no, no. It's much worse than that. Do, do that thing with the, you know, like the, uh, the big dramatic thing. In crisis. Much better. Well, in crisis as much as a club who are currently second in the Premier League can be in crisis anyway. It all kicked off for a lot of fans after manager Jose Mourinho completely fucked the Champions League by losing 2-1 at home to Sevilla, in a result that no doubt saw Jamie Carragher jump straight in his Range Rover and drive up and down the motorway shouting, 2-1, unlucky lad, to anyone in a red shirt. It seemed for many, this was a watershed moment. Not so much the result, but it was the instant that fans realised no matter how much money Jose spends, his expensively assembled millionaires would always play a style of football more befitting Stoke City. And I don't even mean the Mark Hughes Stoke City. I mean the Tony Poulis one. The Reds were frustrated, and no more so than comedian Steve Shanyaski, who came up with the perfect analogy on radio station XS Manchester. It was diabolical, it was depressing, <laughs> it, was pa- it was passionless, it was, it was confusing. Awful. It was awful. It was like, sometimes when I swim, you got the elderly, they've got their own lane, and they don't swim... They sort of bounce up and down, walking <laughs> up and down. And you're watching them thinking, are you, gonna sw- are you swimming or walking? What are you doing? Are you swimming? Because have a swim. If you're walking, go and have a walk. Don't come in the swimming pool and start walking about. It makes no sense. And it felt exactly the same watching United. It felt like there were elderly people bobbing up and down a swimming bath. Beautifully put. And to build on that analogy, with the kind of respect that Jose seems to be showing the club and the fans right now, he's probably taking a leak in the shallow end as well. So how do you calm angry fans? You take the blame, maybe promise more in the future, focus on the positives, but not Jose, because Jose went full Jose and deflected the blame like never before. Was it his fault that United had lost, and lost so diabolically? Of course not. It was the club's fault. Because Manchester United are a club that are used to losing. I sit in this chair uh, twice in the Champions League, and I knock out Man United at home, at Old Trafford. I sit in this chair with Porto, Man United out. I sit in this chair with Real Madrid, Man United out. So I don't think it's, it's something new for the... For the club. Great way to win over the crowd, Jose. Just remind them how shit their football team has been. I hope Alan Pardew's taking notes. Interestingly, he has kind of got a point because the most successful Champions League manager at the club in the post-Fergie era is in fact David Moyes. 
David Moyes. A man who could well have relegated two other Premier League clubs in Sunderland and West Ham before his original contract at Manchester United has even expired. It wasn't just the historic failure of the club that was the issue, however. It was also the money that Jose was given to spend as manager, and he demanded more cash in order to compete with the big boys. I mean, if you forget about the £300 million that Jose has spent during his time at Manchester, it's amazing he's even managed to find 11 players that can kick a ball in a straight line. Well, 10 players and Paul Pogba, who hasn't quite mastered that particular talent yet. Maybe we should all have a whip round, see if we can club together and give Jose a bit of the cash he needs. Every season, managers like me are first to survive on multi-million pound budgets. Only able to bring in one, uh, two uh, global superstars to provide disappointing performances. Sometimes even forced to sell French players in, in order to make ends meet. You know, just 300 million is enough for football. Coaches like me to create a team full of big names, but not to have them playing with any consistency or flair. You know, come on, Manchester, give a little to me. No, give me money. But that wasn't the end for Jose this week. He chose to use his pre-match press conference ahead of United's game with Brighton to go on a 12-minute uninterrupted rant about the club's heritage. Imagine the ego of that man. To talk on and on for minutes on end, not pausing to let other people talk, not pausing for breath, and just assuming that other people want to listen to his monologue. You'd never catch me doing that. But it's crisis no more, as just 11 months after signing a new contract extension, Jose found himself in the job queue at Christmas. Actually, the change of regime at United seemed positively surgical when you compare it to the ousting of Arsene Wenger, who finally left the Gunners this year, and he did so, leaving behind a rather surprising legacy. I think the general reaction to Wenger's announcement that he would be stepping down as Arsenal manager at the end of the season was perfectly summed up by fellow podcaster True Geordie. Today's a good day, isn't it? It's a good day because we are never going to have to listen to that fucking Wenger in, Wenger out debate ever a fucking again. Thank God. But we shouldn't just be thinking of ourselves and the tedium of the whole debate. Just consider the impact on the economy that this news will have. The makers of Wenger out signs will no longer have any call for business. The guys on Arsenal TV aren't going to be able to pull in those delicious clicks with inexplicably angry rants about Arsenal anymore. And what about the guy who flies the planes with banners over North London? Did Wenger even consider him when making his decision? Did he? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, from negativity, there's a fair amount of love for the Frenchman, with former gunner Paul Merson, in a rare moment of speaking a tiny bit of sense, backing the club to rename the Emirates after him. That's his stadium. He built it. He made that stadium. Even if they called it the Emirates Arsene Wenger Stadium, he deserves to be on that. It's a great idea, as long as you also replace the entrance and exit signs with Wenger in and Wenger out ones. Actually, thinking about it, The club's already named after him, isn't it? Surely that should be enough. In truth, Arsene Wenger shouldn't be remembered for his team's poor displays or his refusal to see anything on the pitch that put his team in a bad light. But he should be remembered as a visionary that came and changed the philosophy of football, not just at Arsenal, but in the Premier League. As a man who gave us players like Robert Perez, Dennis Bergkamp, Alexi Sanchez, Terry Henry, and a man who once went an entire season without getting beaten in the English top flight. A feat that likely will never be repeated. Not to mention he finished fourth in the league a couple of times too. But there is one lasting impact he had on the world of football that no one will forget. As Times journalist Alison Rudd, speaking on Five Live, reminded us all. Other fans envied. They envied the style of their play. They envied the sort of exotic nature of their manager. Who, you know, let's remember he's the guy who brought broccoli to England. He brought broccoli to England. That can't be right. I'm checking Wikipedia. Here we go. 
Broccoli was brought to England from Antwerp in the mid-18th century by Peter Shearmakers. Arsene Wenger invented broccoli. What a load of bollocks. I bet that Peter fella was probably responsible for Arsenal's back-to-back FA Cup wins in 2014 and 2015 as well. What a legacy, eh? The man who brought broccoli to English football. Part football manager, part greengrocer. Arsene wasn't the only manager to go in May. That was a particularly busy month for the new manager, Axe. So it wasn't surprising when Everton joined in. One of the likely changes at the top at the end of the season will be Everton, where despite an improvement in fortune, slightly, Sam Allardyce's unique mix of self-congratulatory bullshit and turgid football has got a few fans' backs up. So much so, in fact, that the club's powers that be decided the sensible thing to do would be to send out a survey to fans to see exactly how much love there is for Big Sam. It's a bit like one of those tell-us-how-we-did online questionnaires you sometimes get after you've had a meal out at a big chain restaurant. You know the type. Answer this survey for your chance to win a free Chinese buffet and a pint of wine. That kind of thing. This was never going to go well. Asking Everton fans to rate their manager is like asking Juventus fans their opinion on Michael Oliver. Maybe unsurprisingly, as any man asked to give an opinion on his own death warrant would no doubt believe, Big Sam doesn't think that handing out the survey to fans was the club's greatest ever idea. Right, the survey, all right. The marketing, director of marketing and communications has clearly slipped up, all right. It was a big mistake. When you say mistake, do you mean error of judgment or a mistake as in somebody got the wrong memo? Somebody mistakenly told someone to write a survey, then someone else mistakenly created the survey questions before another individual mistakenly sent it out to thousands of Everton supporters. Seems like a whole load of mistakes, doesn't it? But then again, this is the same Everton who have conceded 54 goals this season, more than West Brom. So the concept of mistakes is hardly anything unusual. But there was one big question left for Big Sam, even after he'd specifically said he did not want to score himself on the survey. Go on, what would you give yourself? (laughs) (laughs) 11. (laughs) Can't argue with that, really. I mean, he he does realise it's out of 100, doesn't he? Jose, Arsene and Big Sam weren't the only managers to get their P45s in 2018. Joining them in the job queue were Mark Hughes, Marco Silva, Maurizio Pellegrino, Alan Pardew, David Moyes, Carlos Carvajal, Antonio Conte, and Mark Hughes again. And that was just in the Premier League. In total, there were 71 managerial sackings across the English Football League last year, meaning the only job you can get with a shorter life expectancy is in Theresa May's cabinet. And just like Theresa, we're ignoring anybody working in Scotland, Wales, Ireland or the rest of the world. But with all these sackings, football quickly realised there was a shortage of decent managers to replace all the ones they got rid of. So they started to think outside the box, just like Paraguayan side Club Sportivo de Demio, who actually appointed a stray dog as an assistant coach. But with strict health and safety rules to abide to, this simply wasn't an option for the English FA, who were forced to take a more drastic course of action when they appointed a new manager for the England women national team. If you were the boss of a major footballing organisation that has been hit with a few major scandals recently, all around the topics of inequality and sexism, who would you appoint as the next manager of the women's international team? Is it A, an experienced female coach with a proven track record in the ladies' game and excellent coaching credentials? Or is it B, Phil Neville? If you said Phil Neville, you are, of course, wrong. But on the plus side, there is a decent chance that you're also Martin Glenn and pulling in a 650 grand a year salary. So, swings and roundabouts, eh? Yep, the FA have decided to completely ignore all the perfectly qualified female coaches in the sport, as well as all the perfectly qualified male coaches for that matter, and appoint poor man's Gary Neville, Phil, as the new head honcho for the England women's national team. On the face of it, appointing a man with zero experience in the women's game, who admits he's only been to a couple of matches, looks a bit, well, bizarre. But if you listen to Pinev, he is convinced that he is the right man for the job. 
What would you say to those who believe you're not qualified? Well, I've worked with the best players in the men's game in world football. I've worked abroad in, in Spanish football. I've got experiences of different cultures. Actually, I think I'm the best person qualified for this job. Interesting statement, that, Pip. As much as I think a brief one-game spell as caretaker manager of Salford FC gives you endless kudos in terms of managerial experience, I'd argue that there are probably one or two people in the game who just about edge you out in the qualification stakes. Let's forget all the coaches and managers in the men's game who have coached and managed. What about the women's game? How about the person you are actually replacing? Mo Marley, a former England player and captain, former manager of the England women's under-19s team, who has herself been awarded an MBE in the past for her services to women's sport. Or ex-Birmingham City player Laura Harvey, who has experienced both England and US national setups, as well as managing teams stateside. Or even Manchester City's title-winning boss Nick Cushing, who has spent the last five years working in the Women's Super League and building one of the best teams the league has seen. Are you absolutely sure that a few months working with your brother in Sevilla makes you more qualified than any of them? Even if you do, at least they've not sent a load of sexist tweets. The truth is, all those excellent candidates were approached to do the job before Phil Neville and in fact turned it down. Probably not in the least part due to the kind of attention that comes with being England boss. Attention which Neville has already learnt about the hard way. Look, I'm not a fan of going back into someone's social media history in an attempt to dig a little bit of dirt. It's sneaky and it's often not really a true reflection of that individual. Although what I have enjoyed is the hilarious backpedalling and even more hilarious excuses that have been rolled out in the wake of the scandal. If you don't know what happened, almost immediately after getting the new job, a load of Twitter messages were uncovered from Philip Neville's account, all with misogynistic and sexist undertones. It was stuff like... You women always wanted equality. Until it comes to paying the bills. Hashtag hypocrites. And also... Relax, I'm back, chilled. Just battered the wife. Feel better now. But are those really sexist tweets? Not according to Phil Neville. I was on holiday at the time. In isolation, they looked terrible. But it was relating to a game of sport, table tennis, basketball, on holiday with my wife. I am a competitive person, so is my wife. Firstly, what the crap is table tennis basketball? It's not even a real sport. This is a man we're putting in charge of a national sports team. And he's just making up sports. He's going to have the women playing cricket, boxing or golf, snooker or darts, rugby before the next tournament. One but let's put that to one side. It just sounds like the world's worst made-up-on-the-spot excuse ever, doesn't it? Oh yeah, when I said I'd battered the wife, what I meant was I'd covered her in a light tempura mix before shallow-frying her in an oriental style. Very believable. I bet David Moyes now wishes he'd come up with that kind of excuse when he threatened a reporter last year. You still may get slapped even though you're a woman. <laughs> you careful the next time you come in. When he said slap, what he meant was... Let's have a game of playground favourite slapsies. Or as Phil Neville calls it, backgammon slapsies. <laughs> One thing that Phil does need to work on as England boss, though, is obviously his maths. He's already proved on punditry duty with Sky Sports that counting isn't his strong point. I thought he was trying to out at times. He so desperately wanted to, one, score goals, one, play well, one, be the star, two, th four, play for England. And he's been at it again when he was giving his first proper interview as England boss. Part of my vision is to make sure that the next time we come round to this process that we've got five, six, seven, eight, ten female coaches all going for this job. Eight, nine, ten, Phil. That'll be all that wealth of experience that he's had in Spain. He even counts with a false nine. Over the course of 2018, football paid its respects to many loved and respected heroes. We said goodbye to World Cup winner Ray Wilson, Jimmy Armfield, Cyril Regis, Ray Wilkins, Fiorentina captain David Astori, Liam Miller, and J. Lloyd Samuel are just a few. But there was one tragic death that affected every single football fan, and beyond, one night in October at the King Power Stadium. That of Leicester City Chairman Vichai Shivadana Prabha. 
It was fitting that Leicester City should get a win this weekend and it was even more fitting that the minute silence held before every single Premier League match this weekend was so perfectly observed, both in grounds and I have to say, surprisingly, even in the pub where I chose to watch Arsenal's game against Liverpool, there wasn't a fam or a blood herd anywhere. There's just a profound sadness right across football. And let's not forget the others who lost their lives in the tragedy as well, or the bravery of the pilot whose quick thought saved lives by guiding his helicopter away from busy roads and crowds. But it's the legacy left behind by the owner himself that has really touched football fans. He has a rare honour in football, being loved by the players, being loved by the club and being loved by the city as a whole. A city that he invested in as much as he invested in the club itself and a legacy that I think was best summed up by Fox's keeper, Kasper Schmeichel. There was nothing he wouldn't do for you. He would help you in absolutely anything. He was always available to the players, to the staff. Yeah, without him, we weren't here. None of this was possible. All the memories we made together as a family, yeah, without him, it, it, it would have never happened. So, so again, overwhelming sense of pride to be part of it. And that's it. Without this man, that amazing football season that every fan will always remember would never have happened. Because of this man, every football fan up and down the country, no matter who you support or how bad your football team is, when they saw in 2016 the Foxes lifting the Premier League trophy against the odds, suddenly there was a glimmer of hope, a slither of a dream that it's not always going to be the same big teams winning everything year after year and that one day, maybe, our team might do a Leicester City. Very few chairmen ever have that kind of impact or relationship with the fans. And if there was a league table for chairmen, I'm sure Vichai would still be more than 10 points clear. I'm also pretty sure that propping up the table would be the Newcastle owner, Mike Ashley, though last summer it started to look like he'd changed his tune. After seemingly a pretty inactive transfer window that failed to strengthen Rafa's troops, owner Mike Ashley is about to splash a great big wad of cash on a new player. A £90 million player, in fact. Money that he's spending to bring in Fraser. Now, I must admit, I don't know much about this player. I'm not sure I've even ever heard of him, but for that kind of cash... Yep. It's also Fraser, Jim. It's a department store, not a player called Fraser. Oh. So Mike Ashley's pockets might be bare when it comes to player recruitment, but he's rolling in dough when it comes to buying high street chains. Wolves sign Martinho, Liverpool get Allison, West Ham bag Anderson, and Newcastle get a shed load of Hilfiger sweatshirts and a lorry full of old warehouse handbags. It might well have upset some shirtless Magpies fans that their owner was spending money on anything other than a centre forward, but A, it's hard to argue that potentially saving 16,000 jobs is more worthy than Newcastle United's Premier League season. B, I don't think the fate of the 16,000 people mentioned in A would have ever crossed Ashley's mind. And C, if you think Rafa Benitez was getting a sniff of any of that money if it hadn't been spent elsewhere, then you're as deluded as Jack Wilshire seeing his move to West Ham as a route back into Gareth Southgate's plans. We should always dream, you know? We, we always have to have dreams. At least it's going to be entertaining to see if the sports direct owner can turn around the fortunes of another high street brand by giving away a load of giant mugs with the shop name on the side. In reality, and optimistically, it could be a shrewd footballing move for Ashley after all. Invest £90 million in the transfer market nowadays, you might get one or two decent players. Buy a high street chain with 16,000 employees... Odds are, at least three of them have to be better in midfield than Mo Diarmi. Other clubs were much busier in the transfer window. Sanchez went to United in a swap deal with Henrik Mkhitaryan going to Arsenal. Ibrahimovic crossed the Atlantic and lit up the MLS. Riyad Mahrez finally got his move to Man City. And Tottenham, um, actually, Tottenham spent less than Newcastle, becoming the first Premier League team to not buy anyone in the whole window. But nobody splashed the cash more than Liverpool, who were transformed by the arrival of Virgil van Dijk. But that deal was only made possible by letting their miniature maestro Pip go to Barcelona. Let's talk about a positive. Let's talk about love and pain. All is not well at Liverpool right now after the £140 million departure of Philip Coutinho to Barcelona. All the money in the world 
can't fix a broken heart. And poor old Robert Firmino is pining for his best bud. <laughs> Firmino took to his Instagram account this week to post a heartfelt message to his departed brethren. Liverpool is no longer the same without you, my magical brother. I wish you infinite success and that you enjoy life and realise all your dreams, brother. It was an honour to play with a magician like you. One mention of being a magician I can kind of accept, but two, I think Coutinho might actually be a magician. Maybe instead of the usual ball-juggling keepy-ups the players have to perform at their grand unveiling, maybe Coutinho could announce his Barca announcement with a little card trick or two instead. Clearly this has worried Liverpool and they are keen to keep at least one Brazilian and have offered Firmino a contract to keep him at Anfield until the end of his career. Which to me sounds like more of a threat than a promise. It won't do any good anyway. It's just the natural progression of football, isn't it? Liverpool players move to Barcelona. It happened to Luis Suarez, it happened to Mascherano. Liverpool, in turn, take all their players from Southampton. Van Dijk, Sado Mane, Adam Lallana. And Southampton, well, they go knocking on the door of Celtic for their new recruits. Victor Wanyama, Fraser Foster and Van Dijk again. It's just the circle of life. Or the circle of football anyway. But Elton John didn't write a song about that. Actually, maybe that doesn't really work. Because if you follow that logic, Ricky Lambert should have signed for Barcelona and not West Brom. <laughs> 2018 wasn't just the year players went on the move. Club football did too. More Premier League teams than ever went on pre-season tours to North America, and the final of the South American equivalent to the Champions League, the Copa Libertadores, was played at Real Madrid. But even before that, La Liga decided that it would be a good idea if their fans brought their passports on a match day. An official announcement this week confirmed that the Spanish League will be hosting their first ever regular season match outside of Europe and in the good old US of A as part of an agreement to spread football stateside ahead of the 2026 World Cup. La Liga have released a statement in which they said We are devoted to growing the passion for soccer all around the world. Which is great, and I'm sure it'll also mean that high-profile Spanish matches will follow in other burgeoning football areas with a passion for the sport, like Syria, or Mali, or the Sudan. Or do they just mean the parts of the world with a load of money and commercial potential? Yeah, it's probably that, isn't it? There are two ways to look at this. One, it's the end of football as we know it. More shall come. The Premier League will be playing season openers on the Arctic Circle and Match of the Day will be broadcast from the surface of the moon because of a sponsorship deal with Virgin Galactic. Before we know it, clubs will break away into a global Super League where all London clubs will compete under one badge as Capital United, playing meaningless but very lucrative games all around the world. Rivers will boil, fire will fall from the sky, and Paul Merson will be crowned Lord and Master of all. End of times. Or, it's just the inevitable globalisation of the sport. At the end of the day, the match-going fans are a low priority nowadays, and at least we'll have the comedy value of Donald Trump doing celebratory keepy-ups in the centre circle before El Clasico kicks off inside the Yankee Stadium. Thanks. And so sport crisscrosses the world. Already this year, we can look forward to baseball at West Ham, NFL at the new White Hart Lane, and some WWE-style action wherever Burnley happened to be playing. But with all this money splashing around football and more games and more people to watch them, there is more and more pressure on broadcasters to come up with new and innovative ways to show the beautiful game. Man City and Sunderland had fly-on-the-wall documentaries, there was a new Friday night Premier League show which nobody seemed to have watched, and Spurs season ticket holders were invited to watch the grass grow on their new pitch. But all this pales in comparison to what was happening across the pond. Maybe we need to start taking a leaf out of the MLS book. They know how to do showbiz and for their MLS all-star season opener they even mic'd up goalkeeper Brad Guzan and interviewed him during the game during the game we have something very special for you today Brad Guzan is actually mic'd up and can hear us and we can talk to him Brad welcome to the broadcast what's happening guys how much fun is your career watching Miguel Amarone and Joseph Martinez from that end 
Yeah, I've got the best seat in the house, right? I mean, there's times I don't see it as, as clear as I'd like to, but uh, to watch these guys play on a daily basis, it's great. Brad, you've waited a long time for this. 2007, you were in the league. I should probably let you take this goal kick first, shouldn't I? No, he's got to be able to talk to us <laughs> and play a ball at the same time. Yeah, come on. Get your priorities right, Brad. Jeez. Some people say that is a step too far in the name of sports entertainment, but I think it's a great idea. Mic up players, and you could actually hear the racial abuse that John Terry hurls at the opposition. Brilliant. The issue is that the likes of Wayne Rooney and Harry Kane have enough troublemaking sense after the game. Just imagine the bollocks they come out with during the match. (laughs) Bollocks just weren't on the agenda for Radio 5 Live. In fact, according to what Mark Chapman said, they had exclusive rights to the complete opposite. Aaron Ramsey will miss Wales Nations League game against the Republic of Ireland tomorrow after his wife gave birth to twins over the weekend. Full commentary of that on Five Live Sport. Hang on, what? Full commentary of Aaron Ramsey's wife giving birth? I'm not sure I'm into that. I mean, I know the BBC is struggling to hold on to the crown jewels in terms of sporting events, but... Come on. Let me just clarify something. Uh, Due to my appalling delivery of the Aaron Ramsey story, we have commentary of Wales against the Republic of Ireland tomorrow, and Aaron Ramsey will miss that because his wife gave birth to twins over the weekend. We don't have commentary on Aaron Ramsey's wife giving birth to twins. Thank God for that. Although now I've heard the other options, the birth commentary sounds slightly more appealing. Well, there's definitely some activity down there. Are we about to see an appearance from the much-talked-about Welsh duo? Everyone is looking dead on their feet right now. But can she buster one final push? Yes, yes, she can. And here they come. Actually, the BBC are way behind the curve here. I seem to remember we did a story about Phil Bardsley's wife wanting to live stream their kid's birth. I think the episode was called GoPro Ankles. You can check it out. But whatever technology you have or how much money you have at your disposal, you cannot create an atmosphere from nothing. And no, that is not a dig at Man City. It's in fact a reference to England's Nations League game in Croatia, which was played in an empty stadium. The game was only available on Sky Sports, so if you wanted to watch the game, you needed to fork out £7.99 for a day pass, meaning there were probably more people watching the game in the empty stadium than there were on television. The match in general had a weird, eerie atmosphere. You could hear the players shouting, the balls being kicked, and probably the disappointment in the lack of action as well. Even the commentary felt almost too loud in comparison. Maybe it would have been more appropriate to do the commentary in the same way they do the golf. And here he is, Marcus Rashford. He's got the ball slightly back in his stance here, taking that familiar unorthodox run-up. He doesn't look happy with that. And yes, he's given it too much. He would have hoped for better. And that really sums up just how important it is to have a professional behind the microphone. But it seems not everyone got that memo, as for some reason in April, down at the London Stadium, the match winner found themselves being interviewed for TV by Cockney hardman Danny Dyer. Andy Carroll. Why is it so stressful watching West Ham? I don't know. It's just one of them right stressful nights. I'm stressed out. My kids are stressed. Everyone's stressed. But it's good to see you back on the scene, Cheers, sunshine. Man. Good Cheers, to have you back, mate. Nice to see you again, Congratulations. mate. Congratulations. Great Cheers. goal. Tell them, mate. It's less an interview and more a trail of Danny Dyer's consciousness. And it might be the greatest post-match interview of all time. If the players aren't going to say anything interesting, and they rarely do, let's just get the interviewers chatting to them like they're a stranger in the supermarket queue that's just got a bit too friendly. Amazingly, that wasn't the last we saw of Danny when it came to football. After England lost to Belgium in the World Cup, after England lost to Belgium in the World Cup the first time, he popped up on ITV's post-World Cup coverage to say this. So what's happened to that twat David Cameron oh. who called it on? Let's be fair. Oh. I think you're referring no, to no, a former no, Prime no, Minister. No. Yeah, but why the, how comes he can scuttle off? He called all this on. Mm. Yeah. yeah. He, he has no regrets. Where's, where is he? He's in Europe, in Nice, with his trotters up. Yeah. Where is the geezer? That's almost all we've got time for. But before we go, I just want to play this. A little prediction we made on the show six months ago for what this year could hold in store. The year is 2019. Gareth Southgate in his new role as PM has successfully negotiated Brexit for a more prosperous Britain. 
The Queen has left Prince Philip and remarried Jamie Vardy, and Sir Harry Kane continues to be an inspiration to us all. It's Coming Home has become the new national anthem, and all is well in the green Isles of England. Apart from a severe and devastating shortage of Blue Navy waistcoats, which have become the national costume. And all this just because in the summer of 2018, it came home. So that was 2018. Quick shout out to Ben Nicholas, Anthony Lamming and Mel Bridger who do lots of awesome voice stuff for us and also are guest hosts across the year including Amy Christophers, Damien St. John and Dotton Adebayo. Also, got to thank Sean Alsop, Luke Berry and Lucy Lavery who helped this year sound so good. And thank you to you for taking the time to listen. We'll be back with our more regular Shorter Dose every Monday. Do us a favour, if you've liked it, tell someone else about it, and not just the once, keep telling them until they've listened and subscribed, or just unfriended you and blocked your calls. And that's it, from me, Ant, and Jim, who's drunk somewhere. Bye! Alright Jim, do you want? The show's over mate. (laughs)